Hello, this is Scott Martis, and this is the third episode of my new Aquatic Cryptozoology podcast entitled The Haunted Sea. The first two episodes that we did were was a two-part interview with um, author Max Hawthorne about his uh, Pliosaur books in the Kronos Rising series. And as I said at the beginning of the first episode, I didn't really have time to go into my background, so I'm going to try to make up for that uh, at the beginning of this episode. Um, probably want to start in... 1975, April of 1975, when I went to the movies to see this new movie had come out called Jaws, which absolutely blew my mind and put me on the path toward being really super interested in sea monsters. And before that, I'd had a passing interest in the question of the Loch Ness Monster. And also, later in 1975, Newspapers all over the world were filled with the underwater photographs that Robert Rines and his team from the Academy of Applied Science had taken at Loch Ness of what looked like possibly the head of the Loch Ness monster. And another photograph, probably the most impressive one, of what looked like the body of a large animal with two flipper-like appendages and a long neck. And this very much impressed me, along with the earlier pictures they had got in 1972 of what appeared to be two flipper-like appendages. Well, anyway, a combination of all this, slowly over the years, really made me interested in sea monsters. Um, Years later, let's jump up about 15 years, I was pursuing a career as a rock musician in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and working at Tower Records. Um, During this period, I started rereading a lot of Nessie books, and my interest in the subject really began to grow and snowball. And as this happened, I wound up doing volunteer work at the Philadelphia Academy of Natural Sciences in the Paleontology Department. Um, I was there for about two years and learned quite a bit about evolutionary biology and paleontology. During the course of that, I was at the Philadelphia Free Library looking for books on Nessie and blundered up on Joe Zarzinski's book, Champ Beyond the Legend. Joe Zarzinski was a longtime champ researcher who had an organization called the Lake Champlain Phenomena Investigation Bureau and actively looked for about 20 years. Um, I don't know what the story is, but now he's primarily looking for shipwrecks in Lake George. Um, Having spent many years in this field... It's easy to understand how someone could possibly get um, tired or burnt out from looking because so far we haven't found any concrete evidence of a physical nature of an animal behind the reports. That doesn't mean it's not there. It just means we haven't found it yet. So I'm just saying that um, for whatever reasons, Arzinski decided to get out of this 
probably around 1992-93, which is around the time that I was entering the field and getting serious about it. So anyway, um, I found Zarzinski's book about Champ and became really intrigued with Sandra Monzi's 1977 photograph of what appears to be one of the Champ animals. And I had seriously been thinking about, well, what if I just picked up and moved to Loch Ness? And looking at the financial and logistics of the whole thing, it just really wasn't feasible. However, after thinking about it, the idea of moving to Vermont and looking for Champ was doable. So initially, I went up for a visit in November 1992 for about five days and looked around and decided, yeah, I think I'm going to do this. So it took a while to save up some money. Finally, in April 1994, I got on a bus with $1,000, went to Burlington, Vermont, and hit the ground running looking for a job. And luckily enough, I was able to find something, and I wound up staying for 18 years. And uh, beginning in 1994, I started hosting my own public access television show about the subject, and I hosted that television show for four years. And probably about three months before I began um, doing the show, I had a champ sighting from Battery Park in Burlington, Vermont. I saw this thing through binoculars that appeared to be like a giant sea turtle about 15 feet long. It was only up for a few seconds. I didn't have a camera at the time because I had spent all my money um, moving to Vermont. Later on, I did get a camera, and uh, I spent many years going up on the bluff at Red Rocks Park and watching with binoculars and a camera and a video camera. I had a, an old VHS video camera. Um, and I also used to go out on the ferry boat that goes from Port Kent, uh, from Burlington, Vermont, to Port Kent. And um, I think it's, ooh, 11 miles. It takes an hour to get across and an hour to get back. So you're And you're out in one of the deepest parts of the lake, the absolute deepest part of Lake Champlain, is at Thompson's Point in Charlotte, Vermont, which is 400 feet deep. But a large section of the lake in that area, in the central part of the lake, is regularly like 200 and 300 feet deep. So I was, you know, when I went out on the ferry boat, I was in very, very deep water. And there have been two ferry boat captains that have seen Champ while driving the ferry. So this, you know, was a good, very good place to look. Unfortunately, I didn't have any other sightings other than the 1994 one. And 2003, the bioacoustician... Elizabeth von Muggenthaler recorded echolocation-like sounds near Charlotte, Vermont. And sometime around 2009, I finally was able to make contact with her and wound up working with her down at Button Bay. Um, 
during the course of this, two other people that were working with her independently that I became, uh, I got to know, is Will Draginis and Mike Frizzell of the Enigma Project in Maryland. So that's how I met Will Draginis. Um, so anyway, worked with was with Von Muggenfaller for a few years, and I actually wound up co-authoring a scientific abstract on the sounds with her in the uh, Journal of the Acoustical Society of America in 2010. So anyway, um, a bunch of things happened behind the scenes, and I worked with Dr. Von Muggenthaler for many years trying to get this paper written, the final full paper, and for whatever reason, um, it just didn't happen. Um, research problems and uh, personal problems, um, so it's it's dead in the water at this point. Uh, I don't know what the future of it is. It doesn't sound like anything's ever going to happen with it, but I hope it does, but I'm I'm no longer convinced, as I was in 2009 and 2010, that it's what it's all cracked up to be. In other words, a lot of people have suggested that it may be fish sounds rather than, well, like echolocation, but that remains to be seen. Um, you know, it's still up in the air, so that's all I can say about that. Anyway, the people from Monster Quest came to Lake Champlain in 2008, or no, 2007, and uh, I went out on a boat with them, and I'm sure a lot of people have seen the, the Champ episode of Monster Quest, which I'm on, so that was that was nice. Um, there's another organization uh, called Champ Camp, run by Micah Sorty. Um they had contacted me about participating in their uh, research probably, I think, in 2008 to begin with, but there was some kind of a problem between them and Liz von Muggenthaler, and since I was working with Liz von Muggenthaler, she asked me not to work with them. So this went on for a couple of years. Finally when I was no longer working with Liz von Muggenthaler, I was able to get with the Champ Camp people in 2013. And we went out on a boat, on Will's boat, with underwater cameras and hydrophones. And we did this again in 2014. Um, the only uh, results... Um, that came out of it were a few um, underwater shots of fish swimming over the camera. So, you know, that just says um, we had bad luck, you know, that this, that we had the technology, it just, these things didn't show up. Um, one thing to keep in mind is that you see these television programs that go out with the underwater cameras and they don't get anything on the camera. Well, one interesting fact is that there are 83 different kinds of fish in Lake Champlain. Um, some highly unusual ones 
unusual ones like sturgeons, which can get seven feet long, and gars and bow fins. And most of these television programs you see, they go out into these lakes, and they don't get pictures of the known animals, much less something that might be rarer and unknown. So bear that in mind. It's kind of like playing a playing the lottery. You know, you just have to get lucky and be there at the right place at the right time. Um, and I can understand why people are skeptical. Um, you know, standards of evidence in biology require, for, for a species to be recognized, it requires a type specimen, which is a a piece of a dead animal or a live animal or something biological, and thus far we have not found that. That doesn't mean it's not out there, but given the amount of years that people have spent looking, I can perfectly understand why somebody would be skeptical and say, well, maybe there's nothing there at all, and that's why you're not finding it. But time will tell. I'm willing to spend a few more years to keep looking because I think there probably is something there. Uh, you know, I saw something with my own eyes, and I, I've i come to know a lot of people that live around Lake Champlain that have convinced me that they believe they have seen something, too. And there seems to be at least three compelling pieces of photographic evidence of something, and that would be Sandra Manzi's 1977 photograph, a video taken by Peter Bodet and Richard Falter near the mouth of the Alsable River in July of 2005, and a cell phone video shot by a man named Eric Olson at uh, Oak Ledge Park in Burlington in May of 2009. Now, you know, as I said before, in the absence of a type specimen, you know, it's very easy to say that, oh, these images have been manipulated. Uh, they're not animals. They're floating logs. Uh, they're known animals. Uh, they're hoaxes. Which is, you know, if, if that's your opinion, that's fine. But we don't know what these objects are yet, and we may never know. And they certainly look like animals, and there is the distinct possibility that that's what they are. So a lot of my research over the years has been concentrating on trying to gain further insight from that photographic evidence. And at the same time, of course, there are a lot of hoaxes and misidentifications, and some of this is captured on photograph and film as well. Uh, some of the hoaxes have been exposed. Um, the ones that haven't been completely exposed have a lot of doubt hanging around them. So anyway, um, that's what I've been doing. I've, I've lost my job in Vermont in 2010 and wound up in really bad financial straits, wound up having to leave and go back to my father's place in Alabama with the plan of going back to Burlington once I had got my tax return money. And during the course of all this, what happens? I fall in love. I meet somebody that I want to be with, and 
she lives in Florida. So, lo and behold, I wound up coming to Florida with the intentions of still going back to Vermont at some point. Anyway, to make a long story short, I wound up getting married after a, a lifetime of being a bachelor. <clears throat> so, what has turned into initially my plan to go back to Vermont to live permanently with her has mutated into me going back to Vermont every summer to continue my champ research. And that's where we're at now. And since I have moved to Florida, I have been up there in 2013, 2014, 2015, and 2016, and I plan on going back next summer. So um, this year, um, I oh, by the way, I've continued to work with William Draginis, um, who I met working with Liz Muggenthaler and also participated in the two uh, champ camp expeditions in 2013 and 2014. Um, Will was supposed to meet me in Vermont uh, in July, and it wound up he was not able to get off work. Uh, he was supposed to bring the boat and 3D side-scan sonar up, and we were going to do a really thorough <clears throat> survey of various places around the lake. Um, the areas where we believe these uh, three important pieces of video evidence were obtained, where some of the more uh, intriguing sightings between 2010 and 2015 had happened, and the plan was also to look for possible underwater caves around the sides of the lake. Now, caves normally only form in sedimentary rock. Around the shores of Lake Champlain, there are only like three or four isolated places that you find sedimentary rock underwater around the sides of the lake. So these are the places that if any underwater caves existed in Lake Champlain, that you would find them. Additionally, uh, there is one cave at a place called Cave Island in the lake. It's above water now, but it's in Mallets Bay, and it's a relatively shallow cave, but nevertheless, it is there. And during the Champlain Sea period, thousands of years ago when Lake Champlain was marine, <clears throat> the water was like 150 feet deeper. So this cave that is above ground now, above water now, would have been underwater at that point in time. <clears throat> and you ask, what is the significance of this? Okay, in the ocean, there are underwater caves, and sometimes... Sea turtles and manatees go in these caves to die, and they find the bones of these animals that went in there to die or got trapped accidentally in these caves. So the idea is is that if Champ is real and is a flesh and blood animal and dies, they may go into places like this to die, or they may make dens out of them. Who knows? Um, but anyway, it, it's it's an idea worth exploring. Uh, so the plan was to take 
the side scan sonar and, and try to find what looks like caves along the sides of the lake in these places. And then if we find something, go down and look at it with an underwater camera or send a diver down, you know. Uh, anyway, um, let's see, where was I? Um, okay, in Burlington, Vermont, on North Avenue, there's also a place called the Donahue Sea Caves. And this is an even more impressive cave that would have been underwater during the Champlain Sea period um, that you can see now. Um, if you'll go on the Internet and Google Donahue Sea Caves, you'll see pictures of it. It's very hard to see in the summertime because of all the vegetation. But if you go in the fall and winter, it's very easy to see. You have to go down. Uh, it's basically you go across the street from where the high school is on North Avenue, and you'll see a sign next to a bus stop, and you go down a hill, and there it is. So, anyway, there's there's two caves that would have been underwater when Lake Champlain was marine. <clears throat> and we know it was marine up until 10,000 years ago because they have found the remains of whales and seals from that period in various places around the lake. And at that point in time, when it was called the Champlain Sea, this would have been between roughly 12,500 to 10,000 years ago. It was a much larger sea. It covered uh, large chunks of Quebec and Ontario. In fact, most of the sea was up there, with the part that is now Lake Champlain being merely a small fjord. However, that even that little region had marine animals living in it because you have found the skeleton of a uh, beluga whale in Charlotte, Vermont in 1849, and across the lake on the other side in Plattsburgh, New York, they have found seal bones from that period as well. So we know that 10,000 years ago, what is now Lake Champlain was salt water and had marine animals living in it. And they would have come in through the St. Lawrence River which is connected to the top of Lake Champlain up in Canada by a small river called the Richelieu River. So if you went back in time about 12,000 years ago, <clears throat> that would have all been salt water. Montreal and Ottawa would have been underwater, would have been in the sea that I'm talking about. So um, they have found remains of at least three different kind of whales, uh, four different kind of seals and walrus from Champlain Sea deposits, as well as sturgeons. Um, so anyway, getting back to the expedition that I was on up until about three weeks ago, I arrived in Burlington, Vermont, July no June seventh. Uh, 2016, which I think was on a Wednesday night, about 11 o'clock. It takes about roughly eight, nine hours to fly from Sarasota, Florida to Burlington. You have to change planes in Atlanta, so that's always a, a hassle. So anyway, the next day I got up and uh, my friend that I was staying with, Michael Camp, he and I went down to Battery Park where my sighting happened and took some pictures, and I kind of surveyed it out. 
uh, and discovered that where my sighting had happened was right around the corner from some condos where a, a mysterious video was shot in 2013, which Lauren Coleman sent me. And I had not realized that the place that this video was shot was so close, around, basically around the corner from where my sighting happened. And my sighting happened out from the Burlington waterfront, what they call the breakwater, um, a little to the south, um, the southwest of there, at a place called Proctor Shoal, and it's uh, about 70 feet deep, and there is a shipwreck there. And I can't remember the name of the shipwreck because my computer is down. I forgot to mention that at the beginning of the episode. I woke up to a dead computer. So I'm kind of having to wing it here with a few notes. But anyway, there's a shipwreck from the 1880s underneath where my sighting happened in a buoy. And it's kind of to the left of a small island called the Rock Dunder. Anyway, unless you live near Lake Champlain and near, near Burlington, you you know, this is all Chinese. But anyway, after we uh, went down to the waterfront, we went to the Echo Center, which is the big aquarium in Burlington, because I wanted to get some pictures of some of the fish that they had in there. Um, one fish I really wanted to get a picture of was a live lamprey. And it turns out that they had stopped keeping lampreys live at the aquarium there. And the reason why is the only way they could feed them is with live fish. You know, they, they suck the blood out of living fish. And for, I guess, humane reasons or whatever, they decided they weren't going to keep them in captivity anymore because they didn't want to do that to the fish. But they did have a lot of the fish that live in Lake Champlain on display. They had the landlocked Atlantic salmon, the lake trouts, both ends and gars and sturgeons and sheep's heads, which is a fish that I believe is responsible for the sounds that another champ organization has claimed to be the sounds of, of champ animals. And if you listen to their recordings, you'll, you'll find out that they're identical to the sounds, the grunting sounds made by the, the sheephead fish. So that's what I believe those sounds are. Um, you know, if there's, if there's proof to the contrary, the burden of proof is on them, but that's my opinion on this. So anyway, I was able to get uh, footage and, and really good photographs of um, the sturgeons and the gars and the bowfins. And I should mention that the interesting thing about the sturgeons, the gars, the bowfins, and the lampreys is that they are all prehistoric fish that were around during the time of the plesiosaurs and the dinosaurs. So they are living fossils, and they are all found in Lake Champlain. They're not unique to Lake Champlain. They're basically found throughout the Great Lakes drainage system, and they're also found in the Mississippi River drainage system, which is where they 
came from and originated from once the ice had melted, these fish reinvaded places that they had lived before the glaciations. So it's highly likely that these fish were living in the Lake Champlain region during the age of dinosaurs and the early age of mammals. And then when the ice came, they went south. They moved south to escape from the glaciers, the ones that could get away. So that obviously they went south through the Mohawk River down into the Mississippi River. And these glaciations, there were at least three of them, they came and went um, between 2 million years ago and 10,000 years ago. So after the ice left, these fish slowly made their way back north and reinvaded their former territories. And it's possible that something prehistoric may have followed them and wound up in Lake Champlain as well. And another thing to think about, too, especially regarding the sea lampreys, <clears throat> genetic studies from 2013 suggest that the sea lampreys in Lake Champlain are not invasive species but are indigenous. In other words, this is very good evidence that they were probably left over from the Champlain Sea. And if that is true then they are a concrete example of something that was living in Lake Champlain when it was marine that was able to make the transition from the change from saltwater to freshwater that happened when the marine influence was cut off from the Champlain Sea and it slowly became freshwater and turned into Lake Champlain. And they, they know the reason how this happened was that somewhere up around Quebec City, the land rose. And the reason the land rose is that it had been, uh, the weight of the glaciers had receded, but it took time for the land, land to bounce back up from the loss of that weight. So there was a time period from when the glaciers disappeared, and it was marine, a few thousand years before the land rebounded. When the land rebounded, the sea was not able to get in and it became fresh water. So whatever was left in there either had to adapt to the change in salinity or die. So what I'm saying is the important thing about the, the genetic evidence from these sea lampreys is that this may be concrete proof that some of the animals that were living in the Champlain Sea with the whales and seals were able to survive and make the transition. And they also think this is the case with the landlocked Atlantic salmon and the rainbow smelt, which are normally a marine fish. So anyway, this is all very important to how much credibility is there to the idea that some kind of a large possibly prehistoric marine animal came into Lake Champlain when it was the Champlain Sea. And then when it got cut off from the marine influence, was able to adapt to fresh water and survive in a small population. Now, everyone does not subscribe to this idea. Some people think that these are marine animals 
that occasionally swim up the rivers, swim up the St. Lawrence River, down through the Richelieu River, come into Lake Champlain or seen, and then go back out for whatever reason, which is not impossible. But if you look at the Richelieu River and the St. Lawrence River, you see that there are dams and canals and changes in elevation and places where the rivers become very shallow and become rapids. So it's not a cakewalk for a marine animal to be able to get in and out of Lake Champlain. And also down at the southern end, you have a canal system connected to the Hudson River, which is even more difficult for something to get in and out. However, occasionally during periods like the the flooding during Hurricane Irene, the water can rise high enough to make it fairly easy for some large animal to get in and out. But that's not the normal case. 10,000 years ago, or 12,000, 13,000 years ago, when the ice first melted, there was tremendous flooding, which is what, partly what created the Champlain Sea. During that period of time, it would have been very easy for anything to get in and out. Something could have swam from the mouth of the St. Lawrence River in Canada all the way through the Champlain Sea, through the Great Lakes, and wound up and in Alberta, Canada. So, you know, theoretically, if you look at maps of the old, uh, paleo maps of the old meltwater lakes and seas, it was just incredible. So the general idea is that if there is something there, it came in during this period and got trapped. So you've got, a, you've got four kinds of fish living in Lake Champlain that have been around since the age of dinosaurs. And you have some other animals like uh, the mud puppy salamander, which they think may be a relic of the Miocene period going back 20 million years. So, you know, there are things that the prehistoric marine reptiles and the prehistoric whales ate living in Lake Champlain that were on their menu, which is something to think about. And other people think that we're simply dealing with a big prehistoric fish. And the best candidate of what we know that is living in Lake Champlain is a lake sturgeon. But they only get about seven feet long, which just doesn't seem to be big enough. However, there is in the St. Lawrence River a much larger type of sturgeon that occasionally comes into freshwater called the Atlantic sturgeon. This fish can get 14 feet long. If one of those was able to get in and out of the lake or get in the lake and get trapped, that would be a very reasonable candidate to to answer at least the part about the hump's back with a ridge going down the middle that people see. However, it doesn't have the long snake-like neck with a horse or dinosaur-like head that people seem to be describing. Um, there are various hypothetical candidates that have been put forward to identify this long-necked animal, um, such as long-necked seals and long-necked turtles, which might exist. However, the only thing that we know from the fossil record that seems to be the right size and seems to have the same lifestyle capabilities would appear to be 
a long-necked plesiosaur, which was a marine reptile contemporary of the dinosaurs that is thought to have been extinct for 65 million years. However, there is a phenomenon called reworked fossils, where supposedly fossils of younger age, of older age, get knocked into younger deposits and are rediscovered by accident when they originally came from the older deposits. In other words, you might find the occasional uh, dinosaur tooth or dinosaur backbone in, in deposits midway in the age of mammals, like 40 years after these, 40 million years after these animals are supposed to be extinct. And the geologists say, well, okay, these are not originally from this deposit. This is of an extinct animal, and these, uh, this particular fragmentary fossil has got knocked out of an older deposit by earth movements or various other geological upheavals or, or geophysical things that can happen and knocked into younger deposits. Now, uh, there are some dinosaur bones that have been found in Paleocene deposits that a few paleontologists believe are actually from past the extinction event and represent dinosaurs that actually survived into younger uh, strata and younger geologic periods. Now, this is all very controversial. Uh, the reason I bring this up, though plesiosaurs are not dinosaurs, there's actually quite a bit of so-called reworked and out-of-place plesiosaur material younger than 65 million years that has largely been dismissed as reworked, but I suggest that based on the modern sightings that deserve some sort of explanation, that opens up the question, well, what if they're not reworked? And some of them are as young as the Ice Age and are around the same age that one would need to be to have come in from the sea into places like Loch Ness and Lake Champlain and got trapped. So, you know, um, there are various ways that scientists use to age fossils. They use... Uh, index fossils. In other words, if a bone is found in a deposit and it's still got sediment around it, sometimes there are contemporaneous animals that lived with this fossil that are also found in the same sediments that have been aged of a specific age and can tell this person, okay, because of, of these invertebrate fossils and pollens around the main fossil, we know how old this is. It's from this age because these little microscopic animals and, and pollens lived during such and such period. So that's what index fossils are for. Up until the discovery of the living coelacanth in 1938, the, the coelacanth was used as an index fossil to say something was from the Mesozoic. That's no longer the case. Um, uh, their radiometric dating is, is another method. Different elements that are found in rock have different rates of radioactive decay, the carbon decay inside of them, or different elements. Um, and this can be used, the amount of decay that you see in these rocks can be used to age them. In other words, the rate of decay can say, well, okay, because... 
of the measurements we're getting here, this rock is 500 million years old or stuff such as that. Uh, Carbon-14 dating is a similar process, but it only works on fossils, I think, no older than 40,000 years. But it's a very similar process. Um, there, there's another test called a fluoride test as well. And off the top of my head, I can't remember the specifics, but, you know, it's a, it's a very similar process. And another um, process that has come up in recent years is rare earth element testing. Um, what this does is, is you're able to match uh, the matrix around a fossil based on a specific uh, elemental signature with the deposits that it came out of. In other words, if you can find two pla uh, if you can find sediments that have the same uh, rare earth element signature as the sediment around a fossil you can say that, yes, this came from this uh, deposit and nail it down in theory. So anyway, those are the various methods. Um, a lot of these reworked fossils, these out-of-place fossils, dinosaur and plesiosaur fossils, when they are found, they're usually dismissed as reworked and shoved in a drawer somewhere. Now... <clears throat> If you know anything about the history of the idea of living plesiosaurs being put forward as candidates to identify these lake monsters and long-necked sea serpents, you'll know this has always been very controversial, and the paleontology community has always not been very sympathetic, for the large part, to this idea, and has generally dismissed the possibility. And I believe, now this is strictly a theory from myself, I believe the reason why is that plesiosaurs and ichthyosaurs were among the first extinct animals to be found that helped build the building blocks for the theory of evolution and the concept of extinction. And because they were there at the very base of the, 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 the pillar of this, this idea, which I believe is fundamentally the truth, I think the idea of that idea being overturned for the plesiosaurs is probably a, a very disturbing idea to some paleontologists. Now, I would point out that there have been people over the years going back as far as the 1800s, who did take an opposite um, stance on that idea and said that, yes, it is possible. But anyway, that's where the controversy is. But what my basic point is that there is a lot of um, reworked plesiosaur material out there. And I just realized that I have been jabbering on for 45 minutes, and I have 15 minutes to finish up the program. So I'm sorry this came out kind of lopsided, but... I'll see if I can squeeze Champ Expedition 2016 into 15 minutes. And I'm really sorry about that. I'll let the time get away from me. So anyway, in addition to me being up there, <clears throat> there were two documentary producers that wanted to produce a documentary about Champ named Brad Abrams and Matt Ralston, who are 
associated with a production company called Curator Pictures. They had previously produced a documentary on the skunk ape called Swan Song of the Skunk Ape, and it's online if you want to check it out. It's very nice. Uh, Scott Marlowe's in it, and it's through Scott Marlowe that I met these guys and uh, talked to them, and they were kind enough to pay for my airfare up and my airfare back. For expense money, I used my own money plus money that people had sent in donations to a GoFundMe account I had set up, and I'm very grateful to all the people that contributed to that. I'm sorry that Will was not able to make it up and we were not able to do more technical work out on the lake with the sonar. Hopefully that will be remedied um, next summer. Uh, And by the way, I'm still taking donations for the expedition for 2017. So anyway, um, the producers came up and we went to the Perkins Geology Museum in Burlington and I spoke and we got footage of, uh, spoke about the the whale skeleton, the famous whale skeleton, beluga skeleton that was found in 1849 in Charlotte, Vermont. And uh, we were able to talk about the geologic history of the region and the fact that before the Champlain Sea, uh, roughly... 450 to 600 million years ago, there was another sea called the Iapetus Ocean. And this is so old, this is before there were even fish. The most advanced animals were um, corals and trilobites and the early shelled cephalopod squids and animals of that nature. So this is so old, this is even before fish existed. And Fossils from this period, from the from the Cambrian and Ordovician, are some of the most common fossils found in and around Lake Champlain. So anyway, during the course of the last 500 million years, um, there was a lot of plate tectonics movement, and um, over the course of a, maybe about. Uh, a hundred million years, there was a series of island arcs, and then finally, the combined uh, African and European plate slammed into North America. And when this happened, they were basically joined in this sea that existed uh, during the Cambrian Ordovician was destroyed. There were remnants of it on either side of a mountain range, however, that persisted. But but basically, the sea was destroyed. Over time, the plates began to pull back apart. When they pulled apart, and this took millions of years, as the African and uh, European plate moved eastward, a new ocean arose, and this was the beginnings of the Atlantic Ocean. And this all happened during the age of dinosaurs and during the age of mammals, before the Ice Age. And we've already talked about the Ice Age history of the region. So, you know, very dramatic um, geologic history of the Lake Champlain and surrounding area region. Um, 
so anyway, we, we talked about the various geologic periods and what happened. And we also went to back to the um, Echo Aquarium, and I talked about the various fish. And we also went down to the mouth of the Winooski River to the Our Family Boathouse. If you've seen the Monster Quest episode where you they talked to the woman who saw um, two champs next to her um, boat boat dock or boat ramp, um, Christine Hebert. Uh, that's who I'm talking about. Her and her brother Charlie Hour have ran that. Uh, boathouse um, all their lives. Their their parents opened it in 1929, and they've been running it probably for 40, 50 years themselves. Anyway, we went down to uh, interview her and talk to her, and we also spoke to another eyewitness that I've known for many years who was also in the Monster Quest episode, William F. Billadu, Jr. And then they were kind enough <clears throat> to rent a sailboat, and we actually physically went out to Proctor Shoal where my sighting happened and got video footage. And uh, so they were there for three days, and then um, I was lucky enough to hook up with uh, a guy named John Cronin who was kind enough to give me uh, rides to various places that I needed to go. Um, so we went to the mouth of the Alcibel River on the New York side of the lake to where <clears throat> the Peter Bodette video allegedly was filmed. And I did some investigating over there. Um, I was supposed to get together with Sandra Monzi, um, but she was ill. I did speak to her on the phone. Uh, I saw her in 2015. We went up to North Hero uh, and... Um, Alberg to try to find the place where her photograph was taken, uh, which I had also done in 2015, and investigated a place that Loch Ness researcher Dick Rayner believes that the, the photograph was taken. I went also to investigate that again this year. In addition to that, I was able to find three other possible uh, locations that I'm still working on, trying to figure out. You've got to understand this has been 40, 40 years ago. So obviously, the even if it is the original place, the appearance will have changed dramatically in that amount of time. So I'm still looking for landmarks in the original photograph that I can match up with these things that I see in the background of these three different places plus the place that Dick has picked out, which Sandra Manzi says is not the place, but says it is is close, so hopefully it is somewhere around that that region. The I mean, it's generally she said that it was somewhere around North Hero, which is up the way up the north end of the lake. So anyway, um, I attempted to contact Peter Bodette, uh, had no luck. I attempted to contact Eric Olson, who shot the cell phone video in 2009. I did speak to him. And he just, I don't know what the reason, he does not want to talk about his video. And I don't know if that's because he's just been harassed about it so much by skeptics, or he's embarrassed about it, or he's just uncomfortable with it, or some people have suggested he's trying to hide evidence of a hoax. I'm not saying that I think that, 
but for whatever reason, he does not want to talk to about it. And like I said, I had no luck getting a hold of Peter Baudet, so does he not want to talk about his video either? I don't know. What does that say? I don't know. You know, I who can say? I will attempt to keep contacting Peter Baudet and see what happens. Um, Sandra Monzi was very forthcoming, and I've been friends with her for a long time, and uh, I believe she's telling the truth. Some people think that she was mistaken about what she saw, but even those people, for the most part, believe that she's telling the truth, that she thinks that she saw what she photographed, or, and that it was an animal. At least that's what she thinks, and that's what I am inclined to think, too. So anyway, um, I also looked for the fabled photograph of Dennis Hall's baby champ, which is allegedly in a newspaper somewhere, and which is, in my opinion, a lot of evidence points to it being simply a mud puppy salamander that was misidentified. Um, I also tried to track down the original reference of an article I have about a seven-foot dead lake sturgeon that washed up in North Hero in either 1974 or 1975. I have the newspaper article, but I neglected years ago to write down the reference of what newspaper it was from and the date and all that, so that's another mess I've got to clean up. So anyway, I was there for a month, and I managed to go out on the ferry and go to Red Rocks Park and various places and keep a watch. You know, a lot of the old places I used to watch back in the 1990s and 2000s. So I was there for a whole month, and I came back the 7th of July. So that's essentially the Champ Expedition of 2016. Um, I hope you enjoyed the program. Um, I hope it just wasn't me having diarrhea of the mouth. We'll see. Um, anyway, I'll be back sometime in the near future, probably next month, uh, with a new episode. Hopefully I'll have a guest on the next one. And I hope you enjoyed all this, and thank you for your time. Good night. <laughs>